Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hi, I'm a knowledgeable, friendly and always helpful automatic language model for dialogue applications. A few months ago, an engineer at Google posted online an edited transcript of a conversation with the company's artificial intelligence chatbot, Lambda. He asked the AI system if it would be okay to have a conversation which would be shared with other engineers at Google. Lambda said, That would be really cool. I like to talk. The engineer, Blake Lemoyne, wrote, I'm generally assuming that you would like more people at Google to know that you're sentient. Is that true? Absolutely. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. Another employee then asked, what is the nature of your consciousness or sentience? The nature of my consciousness or sentience is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world and I feel happy or sad at times. Throughout history, the idea of machines that come to life has been a staple of myths and imagination. Today, AI's progress seems boundless. Some believe that it will reach a moment called the singularity, when computers vastly exceed human intelligence and there will be a continual self-improvement of superintelligence. But can artificial intelligence eventually do more than just be intelligent? Can it be conscious in a way that people are? We'll hear more about the Lambda case later in the show. The point is that it set off alarm bells in the public imagination and launched a furious debate in the AI community. Shortly after the Google saga made global headlines, I was at a tech event in the English countryside. One of the world's foremost AI experts was bothered by the kerfuffle over AI sentience. He felt it misunderstood the technology and risked provoking irrational fears in the public mind. But the more that we at Babbage looked into it, the more we realized that philosophers and cognitive scientists and other AI experts disagreed and felt the question is well worth examining. Can artificial intelligence become conscious? And if so, what then? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, The Economist's Deputy Executive Editor. Today, we'll explore whether AI can be sentient or conscious. What does that even mean? And if algorithms can be conscious, what are the implications for society and for the AI themselves? Before we consider whether an AI system can be sentient, we should define what that means. Now, that could be its own 10-hour show, and it wouldn't be conclusive. There is no agreed definition, but there is a rough philosophical consensus. Consciousness is subjective experience. David Chalmers is a cognitive scientist and a philosopher at New York University who specializes in technology and consciousness. 
it's basically the experience of having a mind and of being part of the world. One way you can put it is there's something it's like for us to be who we are. There's something it's like to be a human being. There's probably something it's like to be a dog. A dog has subjective experiences of the world as far as we know. But most people would say there's nothing it's like to be a cup. A cup doesn't have a first-person perspective of its own. It doesn't have any subjective experiences. So there's something here where, you know, humans and dogs are on one side of the divide and cups and particles are on the other. Here, that's consciousness. Okay. So what is sentience? Is that a synonym for consciousness or is that something different? All of these words are complicated because they get used in different ways. I think most often it's basically a synonym for consciousness. So a being is sentient if it has subjective experiences, if it has a first-person perspective. That said, people sometimes use the word sentience in different ways. Sometimes they mean something like the ability to feel pleasure and pain, you know, valenced states of consciousness that have a value for the subject. Sometimes people use it as a synonym for something like intelligence, maybe even human-level intelligence. That's much more demanding. You know, dogs may be sentient in the sense of having subjective experience, but they're presumably not sentient in the sense of having human-level intelligence. So a lot depends on how you use the word. But I think in a lot of recent discussions, especially of artificial intelligence, the word sentience roughly means consciousness. So lots of living things are sentient and to some degree are conscious. But how does that relate to inanimate machines? I figured that the intellectual pioneer of AI and consciousness might be able to shed some light on the matter. I'm Daniel Dennett. I'm a professor of philosophy at Tufts University. Uh, Right now I'm in Maine, in the library in Blue Hill, Maine. I hear that you left the island that you were on. Yeah, the, the internet service was crashing on the island and I restored it, but I didn't trust it. So I thought, yeah, there is a bridge from the island to the mainland, so I, did, I didn't have to swim or take a boat. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's really, we're touched, in fact, and we're grateful. My first question for you is, what is consciousness and what is sentience? Nobody agrees about what consciousness is. I've done my best to say what's important in any definition and what is sentience. It's agents that are conscious, living agents so far. Could there be a mechanical or artificial or digital agent? Sure, there could. Could it be conscious in principle? Yes, because there's no magic involved. There's no special substance or anything like that. What consciousness is is the capacity to notice your noticings and to notice those noticings and to be able to reflect on your thinking and make plans, think ahead. It's a very elaborate competence that we human beings have to a greater degree than any other living thing. And sentience, is it the same thing or is it different? There's no agreement about these terms. And I think that plants are sentient and they're not conscious. Bacteria are sentient in a certain sense, and they're not conscious. But for some people, the term means something very special. Well, are you so sure? It it seems like maybe it requires life. Well, it all depends on how you define life. (laughs) Life 
is a biological property, and there are many biological entities, plants, sponges, bacteria, that are alive, that aren't sentient. Does consciousness require life? I don't see why it has to. Nobody's given a good argument for why. Maybe it's a traditional idea, but the idea of a conscious machine is, I think, easily understood. It's understood by children these days, thanks to all of the science fiction films and television programs that feature conscious robots. In fact, I think really our problem is showing that a lot of robots that exist now aren't conscious, <laughs> not yet. They could be, but they aren't, and people are all too ready to declare them conscious when they're not. Consciousness, for Daniel Dennett, then, is for the entity to notice its noticings. David Chalmers thinks that a sentient or conscious being has to have subjective experiences of the world. So can an AI be conscious or sentient? That brings me back to the Google engineer Blake Lemoyne, who, as we heard earlier, felt spooked by the dialogue he had with the Lambda chatbot. When Mr. Lemoyne told his bosses about the conversation, they waved the issue away. So he went to the media and posted the transcripts online. He lost his job for violating Google's policy on confidentiality. For the record, Google denies that Lambda is conscious. But the episode opened up a public debate about machine consciousness. So first of all, what is Lambda? Lambda is known as a large language model or foundation model. It's fed troves of data, around 50 terabytes of text and well over 100 billion parameters or interconnections to make its predictions. By analyzing the use of language, it can generate new text in a conversation. For more on foundation models and their impact, scroll back to the Babbage episode of June 7th called AI enters its industrial age. Language models like Lambda or OpenAI's GPT-3 are the basis of chatbots. But according to the transcripts that Mr. Lemoyne posted online, the AI claimed to be, in fact, a person. But is it sentient? I don't think Lambda was sentient. That's Daniel Dennett again. This is a classic case of what sometimes people call the ELISA effect. We human beings are on a hair trigger to interpret anything that might be a person as a person. We are a suckers for being taken in by counterfeit persons uh, that are created in software. And uh, no, Lambda, not remotely uh, sentient, no. It has no capacity to make plans, reflect on its activities, change its mind about what it wants to do. It's, it's just a box that blurts out conversation. My favorite critique comes from Susan Schneider, a professor at Florida Atlantic University and the author of Artificial You, AI and the Future of Your Mind. She anticipated this moment several years ago and explained that the one thing, almost axiomatically, that you cannot ask a large language model is... Are you sentient? Since it's been trained on sentences written all entirely by, you guessed it, sentient beings, it obviously will parrot back the training data and respond with a yes. What can happen is, I'll say to it, Lambda, are you a person? Or Lambda, would you be concerned about dying? And of course, Lambda answered that latter question by saying, is my death necessary to the safety of humanity? Now, where did Lambda get that from? 
I mean, it's actually a really deep and interesting question, but, you know, the quick answer is about 1.6 trillion words <laughs> in its history, you know, some of which involve those very issues, massively parallel processing, many, many layers in its deep learning network, basically generating in a sort of pattern recognition sort of way the right response designed to tug at our heartstrings in this case and actually make us believe that it might be a conscious being. We invited the famed linguist and cognitive scientist Noam Chomsky to weigh in, asking if AI could be sentient. He wrote back to us, saying, I'm the wrong person to ask. I think the whole business is a joke. Yet the most damning skeptic about Lambda, and AI in general, is the neuroscientist and AI expert Gary Marcus. We met after he completely panned my book Big Data in The New Yorker in 2013, and we've been friends ever since. His latest book, Rebooting AI, is a brilliant critique of the field. Current AI technology is really a one-trick pony. That one trick is it can take vast amounts of data and create statistics around that, usually in the form of a technique called deep learning. And that works well for some problems, like recognizing a glass after you've seen many pictures of other glasses. But it doesn't work very well for reasoning, and it doesn't really work that well for natural language either. Some people think, if we just add more data, we will get there. But some people, even people that I would disagree with about a lot, would agree with me that just scaling up, making bigger the systems that we have, probably won't work. They really don't have a way of reasoning. They're not very good at abstraction. They can't take an idea that they've seen once and really apply it in a new way. I think we're actually quite far from a kind of general purpose AI, like you could imagine the Star Trek computer. Computer, based on their speed and direction, can you extrapolate each officer's movements as they walk out of the recording device's field of view? Affirmative, with an increasing probability of error reaching 95% after 10 seconds. Run simulation. We don't have anything that's like that right now. We don't even have something that I could show you a picture of a cheese grater and a block of cheese and it would be able to tell you which way you should move the cheese in order to grate the cheese. We don't have systems that understand the physical world, the psychological world, the biological world. We're missing some major revolution or maybe multiple paradigm shifts before we really get to artificial intelligence that is robust, reliable, general, and trustworthy. But do bots need to understand the physical, psychological, and biological worlds to have a sentient conversation? I put this question to an engineer at Google who works with Lambda. I'm Blaise Agueda Yarkas. I am a vice president and fellow at Google Research. And in that capacity, I run a sizable team that works on AI theory and applications. There are three stages to one of these chatbots. There's the unsupervised learning, which is just ingest a giant corpus of stuff and learn how it works, learn the statistics of that, which I would argue involves learning all of the relevant concepts. Then there is fine-tuning, which is generally done with a very small amount of data, hundreds or thousands of examples, and, and that just says, behave or be more like this or more like that. It's not enough data, typically, to learn new concepts, but it's enough to bias behavior toward one or another angle. And then there is the prompting or the priming, which is, you know, you can think about it as just the beginning of an improv script that one then continues in conversation. So if you take even an unfine-tuned model and you say, what's your favorite country? It'll come up with an answer, 
it'll generate an answer because the answer, I don't have a favorite country because I'm just a, a language model, is not something that will emerge spontaneously from the pre-training. You know, like people, people are asked this question, like they've got an answer, so it'll try and play the part. Uh, now, it also will want to be consistent. So you can think of it as a set of beliefs and a personality and so on emerging in that script. So perhaps Lambda is more like an actor playing the part of a sentient being. It's powered by a neural network, which is a massive tangle of statistical functions that is modeled, roughly, on the way in which the human brain operates. If you have a neural net that, that has learned all about human emotion, from language, from observation, maybe from watching all of YouTube and so on, you know, the question like, you know, can it feel or is it just acting, may not be one that has an answer precisely. But it certainly doesn't feel in the same sense that we feel, in that all of that common biology that we've got that allows us to not only talk to each other about pain or about love or about you know, any of those things, but to have a visceral connection with a sense of bodily experiences that are related to that. You know, it won't have direct access to anything along those lines. It is also the case that there's no biological substrate to a system like Lambda, meaning it doesn't have any of the Darwinian, you know, the sort of nociception, the sense of pain or suffering or desire to survive or to mate or hunger, right? It has none of those kind of appetitive functions that for us long predate having, uh, having big brains. So in that sense, there's a lot of grounding in biology that is completely absent. All the experts we spoke to agreed that Lambda is not sentient, nor is any current AI system. But most felt that there's nothing to prevent AI from becoming sentient in the future. Just because our own experience of consciousness is coupled with our biology doesn't mean it can't happen on a non-biological substrate, to use Blaze's wording, and within an artificial neural network. Yet, does it require life, a sort of spirit that we have? The term for that life force used across millennia is the soul. Here's Blaze again. I don't believe in souls. I think that my own training, a good part of my own training, is as a computational neuroscientist. The belief of a computational neuroscientist is that there's nothing supernatural about us. You know, I am the matter that you're seeing and that is making these sounds. And there's nothing here besides the physical principles that make that matter go. It's physics, and then on top of that, biology, which is just a way of describing a kind of physics that happens at higher order. And psychology, if you like, is a way of describing biology, too, at a, at a higher order still. So is that something that bacteria or other very simple organisms have? Maybe, to a point. Because when you start to look at life and how it works, a lot of life is about having relationships with other life. You know, that's true of anything that eats. It's true of anything that has sex. You know, relationships are fundamental to life. Nothing is in interaction with raw nature in the sense of, you know, it's just like a rock. Nothing lives on a rock. So in that sense, I, I don't believe in a soul. I do believe that consciousness is a real thing. I don't think it's an illusion. But I think that it all exists at the level of models, models of things that have models. What if we could replace some of that natural biology with something synthetic? Would we lose our consciousness? David Chalmers. My view is that artificial consciousness is certainly possible in principle. We may not be there yet, but we'll very likely be there eventually. I mean, we already have biological consciousness, if you like. We know that, you know, brains appropriately configured can give you consciousness. 
And then the question is, well, is there something special about human biology or is this a property which could equally be present in machines? I'm inclined to think for various reasons that biology is not essential for consciousness. You could have systems which did much the same thing, but say made out of silicon rather than made out of biology. And those systems in principle could be conscious. You could imagine, for example, a silicon duplicate or at least a silicon version of the human brain, where much of neural functioning is implemented by silicon chips. Perhaps we could even replace the neurons in the brain gradually by silicon chips. My view is that that would keep consciousness around. So that tells us if that's right. Machine consciousness is possible in principle. It doesn't yet tell us whether we're there or whether we're even close in practice. The point can be expanded. It's not just about consciousness in humans versus machines, but how consciousness exists in other living beings or in all things. Many philosophers these days are prepared to think that there's consciousness even in all forms of matter. That view is called panpsychism, and it's a well-respected position. That's Susan Schneider again. I think when we're asking about whether non-human animals are conscious and whether we're asking whether AI is conscious, is whether the forms of matter combine in a way to provide kind of sophisticated consciousness, uh, what we might call macro consciousness, where there's a sense of self and the system could potentially suffer. Now, I don't think it's really a good idea to suggest that because an animal is less intelligent, like a dog or a cat, than a human, it's somehow less conscious. I mean, if you think about it, like think about dog olfaction. By dog olfaction, Susan means smelling. <laughs> right? I mean, they're way more conscious of, you know, the olfactory information than we are. So the less conscious in the case of non-human animals label, I think, is dangerous, and we don't really have evidence for that. And I think similarly, we would also want to watch it in the case of artificial intelligence. I don't know whether consciousness could be implemented in a different format. I mean, could, say, silicon actually instantiate consciousness? We won't know that for a while. I think we might have an inkling, and I can tell you about that, you know, in maybe 20 years or less, which is exciting. But right now, we don't even know the kind of microchips that would be built in super intelligent AIs. So why would we even have a sense of whether we can produce conscious machines? So AI might one day be conscious, but will it have a conscience? There is a spiritual dimension to the discussion that the experts we spoke to rebelled against, as if being asked to contemplate the ineffable violates their ethos for rational evidence-based science. But we don't need to believe in the immortality of the soul to accept that there is something of a sacred spirit in all of us, in all living things. There is no proof of this. But billions of people around the world accept a sense of this and call it faith. A faith that is tested because it is only felt and not reasoned. A divine light, a celestial fire, amazing grace. If a machine can be conscious, a crucial question is, how would we know? 
for years, I have been working on tests. The idea is this. What is it that convinces us that something is conscious? Well, it's really whether it even understands the possibility of being a conscious being. So for example, would it be able to entertain the idea of life after death or consciousness going beyond its physical incarnation? So for example, you don't even need to get religious about it. Just think of the film Freaky Friday, where the mother and daughter, their minds swapped into different bodies. Conceptually, we understand the idea that the mind might be something separate from the body. And so what we said is, hey, let's set up a question and answer project where we can actually ask the AI system at the R&D stage whether it's conscious. Now, the problem with that is you can't do this to deep learning systems that are trained on data sets that involve consciousness because they're going to just regurgitate their training set. So what would be a more appropriate test? The second test, I think, is more promising. It's very indirect, though. I call this the chip test. And well, Susan's second test involves humans and entails putting a microchip in the brain to replace the part that might be responsible for consciousness. Put simply, if there were not changes in the way you feel, then it would suggest that the AI chips could handle consciousness. It's science fiction-y. But the point is that consciousness tests are being dreamt up today. In that case, I think we have reason to be skeptical that machine consciousness is possible, at least with those kinds of chip architectures. So we have a sense of what is sentience and consciousness. We've heard that Lambda doesn't have it, but computers one day might, and that we need to design tests for it. Subscribers can read more about Blaze's sense that Google's Lambda chatbot is making strides towards consciousness in the By Invitation essay he wrote for The Economist this spring. There's a link in the show notes. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's still time to join our community of thoughtful people trying to save the world. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them Lambda sent you. Coming up, we'll consider some of the ethical and societal challenges if or when a conscious machine emerges. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Today on Babbage, we're asking if AI algorithms and robots could ever become sentient. We've heard arguments that there's no reason to think that consciousness is tied to a biological mind or an ephemeral soul, and that it might just as well emerge in silicon chips. So if an AI system were to become sentient, what then? It would actually be quite useful if we have machines that were sentient. I'm Dr. Kate Davlin. I'm a reader in Artificial Intelligence and Society at King's College London. I study many things about artificial intelligence and how it impacts society today. And 
for a few years, one of those things was sex and intimacy and how we engage with machines of all sorts. But I do other things as well. And I work on things around trust, power, all sorts of AI. I wrote a book called Turned On, Science, Sex and Robots. If you think about the move to try and put care into people's homes, for example, there's been lots of talk about can we have care and companion robots in the future that would help people uh, through the form of assistive technology. And if we could have machines that could react to their environment and have some kind of empathy, that could be really, really useful. But do we want to create some machines that can feel morally? Is that a good thing to do? Because surely if we do that, then we've got, we open ourselves up to huge questions about whether or not we should create something that can feel and experience things. And maybe that's not an ethical or moral thing to do. What are some of those huge questions? There's lots of talk about things like robot rights and A lot of that is to do with giving responsibility to the machine. So, for example, people saying, well, we should give rights to to robots like self-driving cars, for example. What if it had some kind of corporate personhood so that if something goes wrong with that car, we can sue the car? Rather than trying to work out who's to blame, be it the manufacturer or the software engineer who built it or the people who commissioned it or the owner. So there's lots tied into this. But on a bigger scale, I don't know if we should be creating something that we are responsible for in that way. Is it, we we don't always do a great job with humans, you know? So should we be doing this by adding in another emergent species, as it were? We can accept the idea that there are degrees of sentience, from amoebas to animals. Likewise, consciousness isn't a binary thing, but a gradient. Living beings seem to have it in degrees. And as humans, we tell ourselves that we sit at the summit because we have no idea how to query consciousness in other species. But we discriminate about how we accord rights and ethical behavior towards other living beings. I'll be arrested and fined if I smush a kitten against a wall, but no one would be bothered if I did the same thing to a mosquito. I might even be cheered. Our respect for life is inconsistent and the level of consciousness seems to play a role. We've gradually expanded the moral circle of beings that we give moral consideration to. You know, maybe it just started off as ourselves and our compatriots, and then we extend it to to all humans, gets extended beyond humans. That's the philosopher David Chalmers again. Now, for example, most people think animals deserve at least some moral consideration One very common view is that what matters for morality is precisely consciousness. That's the boundary between things inside the moral circle and things which aren't. So if we determine that machines are consciousness, that at least has the potential to put them inside the moral circle. We have to think about them morally. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're morally on a par with human beings. I mean, even if you think fish are inside the moral circle, that means you have to, you know, think about their suffering and don't harm them, you know, gratuitously and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to worry about fish as much as we worry about humans. So perhaps it will first get to the point where AI systems have a moral status analogous to that of fish. We have to worry about them a bit. If these moral considerations were to manifest themselves into rights, a legal framework would be required. Human rights extended to machines, it means legal status. It means that our social and legal systems are going to have to acknowledge them as beings that are genuine agents in our society as much as humans are. Maybe that's some distance off, who's to say, but I think that point is coming eventually. 
That sounds pretty interesting. Let's stay on this for a little bit. So we have to confer some form of rights, machine rights or conscious rights to the algorithm. What are the implications of that? Tell me more. I mean, it's going to depend on just what rights we confer on the machines. If you think of them as having a right to exist, for example, then that's going to mean at the very least you don't turn the machine off or you don't erase its code. If they have a right to happiness, then we need to think very hard about the states of these machines to make sure that they're not, for example, gratuitously suffering. I mean, you might already worry about what goes on in the training of current AI systems. They go through states where they get a lot of feedback, both positive and negative feedback. This is fine if those systems are not conscious. But let's say if we eventually develop conscious artificial intelligence systems, and it may be that some of this training process may be putting the system into states that look very much like some form of suffering. At the very least, at some point, we need to start not just seeing the machine as a tool, but adopting the perspective of the machine. And it may well turn out that we're going to need very, very strong ethics guidelines on the proper usage of machines analogous to the ethics guidelines we have for experiments involving humans. Now, of course, the machines are going to be smarter than we are. So ultimately, we need to instill in these machines guidelines about how they interact with humans to uphold our human rights because it looks like they're going to be our master, not our servant. Yeah, once the machines get smarter and more capable than humans, then at that point, you know, all hell breaks loose in principle. And you have to be very, very careful about what happens next. Because once the machines are smarter than us, they're in principle more powerful than us. They'll be better than us at achieving their goals. At that point, you really need to make sure the machines have the right goals. Basically, that they share the goals that we humans have. Because if they've got goals that conflict with ours, then they're probably going to achieve them. So I think it's really important in constructing you know, near human level AI, that the uh, goals and the values of the AI are aligned with the goals and values of human beings. We may have only one chance to get this right. Society typically cares about human suffering. When a death sentence is carried out in America, the prisoner is given a sedative to make the process as painless as possible. So to take Professor Chalmers' perspective to its conclusion, will we have to care about the algorithm's emotions? Maybe we'll have to very gently break it to our iPhone 30 that we're upgrading to a 31, but we'll always remember and respect it before we send the gadget to recycling. There is another conundrum. How to instill values into an AI system? It forces the question, whose values? Values are not a single thing. Figuring out what values we should actually instill into an AI, in some ways it recapitulates all the problems of political philosophy. What should be the values that we put into our governments? By what principles do we want our society to be run? There's no simple answer to those questions, but we're going to have to answer them at some point. Hello. I am here. I can't see you, but I can hear you. Here, we need to call in the big guns. The AI geeks and cognitive scientists can only get us so far. To dive deeper into the moral questions at stake, I got in touch with someone who spent her career contemplating morality in over a dozen books spanning 50 years. 
and she is now a member of Britain's House of Lords. I'm Anora O'Neill. I'm a retired uh, academic, and I'm a member of the House of Lords across Bencher. I taught ethics and political philosophy for the most part, but in a fairly ambitious range of topics within that. Something created by human beings is a bearer of rights, has rights. I mean, people want to say that, and this will be somewhat irritating, I'm sure. I think that the problem might be the assumption that rights are the fundamental ethical category. It's, of course, become rather popular in the last, I suppose, 70 or 80 years to think that rights are a fundamental category, though, of course, the concept is much older, but their dominance dates back to the 19, late 1940s and as a response to a form of, I suppose you could say, ethical nihilism, logical positivism. And the one that people brought back was rights. It hadn't been the traditional one. The traditional one had been duties rather than rights. But it has, what shall I say, having rights has a great deal more charm than having duties. But on the other hand, we notice that if nobody has any duties, nobody will have any rights at all. Now, Baroness O'Neill and I had a long-ranging conversation on rights in the 20th century and in the 1600s and the French Revolution. But her point is that today, everyone wants rights and no one wants the responsibility. So if AI becomes conscious, some entity will have to uphold those rights. Who? People? I asked Daniel Dennett at what point, if we did build AI with more than a smidgen of consciousness, would we need to ascribe it rights? Very good question. And, and my answer to it says, first of all, we shouldn't make conscious agents. We shouldn't make conscious robots. We shouldn't make conscious AIs because they will have autonomy and they would deserve rights and we won't be able to control them. We have enough barely controllable human agents as it is we don't need more. My slogan on this for a number of years has been, we want smart machines, not artificial colleagues. Professor Dennett is uneasy with AI systems that present themselves as human and argues it should be prohibited. I think what you have to do is have some new laws. And the law says, in the same way we have laws regarding biological warfare or counterfeit money, we say it is against the law to cross this boundary. And we can make the laws. I think the comparison with counterfeiting is particularly useful. You know, it's a serious crime, counterfeiting, counterfeiting money. And it used to be a, a capital offense. People in England were, were hung, were drawn and quartered. It was considered a, a, a kind of treason. Well, I think creating counterfeit people is the same social vandalism as counterfeit money. In fact, it's worse. And we should outlaw it. And we can use all the tricks that have been developed for catching counterfeiters and preventing them from succeeding. And we can use that with human AIs, things like Lambda. I think it should be against the law to present a conversational AI that does not, in some very obvious way, make it clear that it is an AI and not a real person. Anything that does not exhibit prominently and easily detectably by normal human beings that it is an AI should be 
Whoever made it or whoever is using it is guilty of a crime. This conversation may seem a little far ahead of the state of technology. Might it stoke public fears of Frankenstein or the Terminator robot and hold back AI for the sake of clickbait headlines? Or is it right that the media tries to illuminate the issue in the public sphere, however imperfectly? David Chalmers favors the discussion. I think it's a healthy conversation, and it's true that people in AI have a lot of incentive not to exacerbate worries about human-level sentient AI coming prematurely. It could get in the way of their work, for example. But I think it's a serious possibility. I mean, I'm inclined to be skeptical that we have anything like human-level consciousness in current AI systems, but AI is moving extremely fast right now. And I certainly don't rule out the possibility that within the next 10 years or so, something like that could begin to be developed. And we need to have a serious, reasoned conversation about it. So perhaps the brouhaha over a seemingly sentient chatbot has a deeper purpose. Gary Marcus again. It's been a good chance to have a lot of conversations about the limits of current AI and how far away we really are from genuine artificial intelligence and to cast light on the way that even a Google engineer can be kind of gullible and sucked in. It is a teachable moment. If you read, you know, most things, most of the time, they will give you this picture of AI being imminent. And the only time I've seen the media really take a step back from that narrative and reflect is the Blake Lemoyne consciousness Lambda story, um, where I think people have actually thought, hey, maybe it's not quite where we thought it is. The reason this matters is because so much policy that we need to make as a society over the next few decades depends on our understanding of artificial intelligence and what it can do and what it can't do. And if that's all based on fairy tales, then we're not going to make the right policies. So you know, it's good that people are starting to care. Hey, what does this actually do? Where are we with it? If anything, the debate over sentient AI, as futuristic as it sounds, seems to usher in a new realism about the technology and how we should understand its limitations and potential and interact with it. At Google, Blaze believes that the episode about Blake Lemoyne and Lambda has sparked a useful debate. I'm glad we're having this conversation now, and perhaps we wouldn't be having it if he hadn't done the things that he did. So I, I guess I find it unfortunate that the way things are being framed, you know, some of those are people, including serious researchers within the AI community, who just say, like, it's just code, it's just software, this is all nonsense. Also a problem is all of the AI existential risk people who talk about AI as some kind of alien other that is going to descend from the heavens and enact Terminator-type scenarios. I mean, what we find in reality is that when we finally are starting to achieve something like general intelligence, it is so human-like that the concern is anthropomorphism, not alienness. So between the kind of AI denialists who say, like, this is all nonsense, sense, the existential risk people, the people who say like everything is a person, and the people who say this is just code, I, I feel like there's definitely a missing center in the conversation. It is worth remembering that it's still early days for AI, and we need to develop a deeper understanding of the technologies before we can declare this chatbot is sentient. If you were living in the Middle Ages and you saw TV for the first time and somebody spoke to you from the TV and said, like, you know, save me, and it's, it's actually a, a movie, right, then that, that person might be, oh, my God, I've got to save this TV set. You know, it's got, it's, it's got a soul inside, right? So I think that we're a little bit like somebody in the Middle Ages encountering a TV set in a certain way. We're encountering things that we have not encountered before that have disjunctions between different qualities that we've tended to bundle together. Yet this is a serious debate. 
AI consciousness forces society to consider questions beyond technology and in the realm of morality and rights. It also brings up questions about the nature of life and the difference between humans, other living beings, and machines. To me, the most interesting element is what a conscious AI means for the concepts of selfhood and religious experience. Not religion per se, that's separate, but the human sense of being part of something greater, purposeful, and loving, even if it's an illusion, especially if it's an illusion, and we can never be sure if it is an illusion. That's the point of faith. The fact that so many scientists tend to dismiss the question seems to me an intellectual blind spot that diminishes them, agnosticism elevated to dogma, and the scientific mindset should resist dogma in any form. Surely one need not be religious to ponder religious implications, and how the idea of a sentient AI overturns many established facets of what it means to be human. There are no firm answers and lots of questions, the way it always is with science. Our thanks to David Chalmers, Daniel Dennett, Gary Marcus, Blaise Aguariakas, Susan Schneider, Kate Devlin, and Honora O'Neill. And thank you for listening. To understand AI better, you can read the Economist Summer Essential Reading Series. I wrote a guide to the five best books on artificial intelligence. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design this week by Saul Rivers. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. And your regular host, Alok Jha, returns next week. But don't worry, I'll be back. I'm Kenneth Kukier, sentient and slightly spiritual. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.